To the, the Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt Internal, Internal Medicine, Medicine podcast. podcast. Hey guys, this is a pretty exciting podcast for us. Um, given this is a new season with three new hosts of the Vanderbilt Internal Medicine podcast, huge shout out to Casey Smiley and Alex Wiles for doing this for the past two years and then being so patient with us and passing the baton to three new hosts. I thought since it is our first episode, we could introduce ourselves, say a little bit about ourselves, and maybe something, maybe our favorite thing about Nashville. Jared, I'll let you get started. Awesome. Thanks, Tara. I'm Jared Freitas, a newly minted PGY2. Some, sometimes I still feel like an intern, but gradually becoming a, a more confident upper level. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I did all of my undergraduate and medical school training at the University of Florida, so I'm a, a big Gator fan. Go Gators. Chomp, chomp. Yeah, exactly. And I just married my wife, Nicole, last year. We had a pandemic wedding, which was very interesting, to say the least. And we actually just went on our honeymoon to a belated honeymoon to Jackson, Wyoming. So that was awesome. I think the favorite thing, sorry, about Nashville, we really enjoy going to the Edwin and Percy Warner Parks. We live right near there, and we love going there for hiking and exercising, so it's a really great part about Nashville that we really love. Tara, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, everyone. My name is Tara Swanson. I did undergrad and medical school at University of North Carolina, go Tar Heels, and then I moved to the great state of Tennessee for residency. I am also a PGY2 like Jared and Jamie, who you're about to meet. Let's see, Nashville, I love Nashville. I moved here for the music, not the residency program, just kidding. (laughs) I love minor league baseball, so I love going to Sounds games. And my new thing is I'm playing pickleball a lot more often, and I'm getting a lot better, to be honest. Um, But it's one of my favorite things to do in Nashville right now. Jamie, can you tell us a little about yourself, please? Well, I gotta ask first, Tara, can uh, can we see you playing on the weekends? You said you moved here for the music? Yeah. Exactly. Do you have an instrument in mind? Listening. Only purely listening. (laughs) Singing along. Um, Oh, well, that's a bummer, but, you know, maybe maybe I'll catch you on the sidelines sometime. (laughs) Um, But I'm Jamie Paff. I'm also newly minted PGY2. Scared, hopefully hiding it well, um, but enjoying every minute of it. uh, I'm from the great state of Texas. Uh, ventured north to Notre Dame for undergrad, back to Texas for medical school at UT Southwestern, and now finding myself somewhere in between it uh, here in Tennessee, loving Nashville, loving Vanderbilt, really looking forward to whenever I'm able to going to continue my uh, my love of tiki bars by checking those checking out the ones here in Nashville whenever whenever it's safe and whenever I'm able to drink again since I am currently seven months pregnant. So that's true. But also love the parks. Great, great green space here in Nashville. 
That sounds great, Jamie. I can't believe that you're doing residency while also pregnant. I think I'm going to stop complaining about everything from now on. You and me both. Complaining. (laughs) (laughs) You and me both. (laughs) She's crushing it, though. Yeah. We're I all, see her on the wards, and she's crushing it. We're all hanging in there. The scrubs, uh, the scrubs are sizing up, though. Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, today we have Greg Jackson, one of the Vanderbilt Internal Medicine Chiefs, with us to share some more cases. So, thanks so much for joining us, Greg. Yeah, thrilled to be here, team. Thanks for letting me join. Greg, uh, we're really happy you're here. You mind uh, just giving us a little brief introduction about yourself before we begin? Sure thing. So I am originally from a town called Bountiful in Utah, which is about 10 miles north of Salt Lake City. Um, Grew up there with my four other siblings. And growing up, I was pretty involved in sports, uh, namely soccer, and played that through high school. And we had a rule in our family that we had to play an instrument all the way through high school. And so I played the guitar quite a bit. And initially had dreams of coming to Nashville as a musician as I made uh, my own original guitar music and actually produced a CD that my wife unfortunately found a few weeks before we got married. Oh no. And told me that uh, all of the songs sounded the exact same in a very loving way, but in a very uh, honest way that all the songs sounded the exact same. So I realized I didn't have a future in music and decided to pursue medicine. I went to Brigham Young University and after my freshman year spent a couple of years in Spain doing some volunteer mission work. And then we moved out to North Carolina to Wake Forest for medical school. Uh, my fourth year, we had our first son, Owen, who is just the man. We <laughs> love him to death. He's super fun. And then moved out here for residency and uh, had our second, Brooks. He was a COVID baby, wow. and he's about 15 months old now, and he's just starting to walk. So that takes up a lot of our time. And man. Uh, my wife teaches fitness classes for anyone who's interested, and um, we just have a blast with our family when we get home. That's mainly what we do. That's awesome. So. Sounds like your wife is quite a quite the superhero then. Yeah. Yeah. She keeps us all in shape. Yep. Yeah. That's right. Literally that's right. keeping you in shape. Yeah. That's right. Can we catch you at any gigs with all your free time, Greg, on the weekend here in Nashville? Yeah. So unfortunately, the songs that I play now really are kind of like, she'll be coming around the mountain <laughs> and Old McDonald had a farm. And I haven't heard of any bars that are looking for that genre of music, but I'm willing to play if anyone's interested. Maybe some daytime places on Broadway. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, childcare, daycare type of places. I'm I think. I think the real question is, when are we going to break out the CD for the residency? Oh, you know, anytime you want to put people to sleep, that's what. Uh, that's when we can break it out. We'll try to get it as a link uh, that you oh, can yeah. click on for the podcast. Hey, maybe this is my start. Maybe this podcast yeah. is my start. We're going to re- resurrect your career. Oh man! Right. All right, I'm going to start practicing again then. So, uh, Greg, uh, what are you planning on pursuing after your chief year? Yeah. So right now, I'm applying for cardiology fellowships. Um, I initially got interested in cardiology at the beginning of medical school, but then kind of went through the seems like what everyone does and was interested in a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And then my fourth year of medical school, I did a a mission trip down to Nicaragua, where we provided electrophysiology ablations to folks there. And uh, since then, I've been pretty interested in electrophysiology. And if I can stomach more training after cardiology fellowship, the plan is to keep keep on going to electrophysiology. So that's the, that's the current plan. Sorry. That's great, Greg. Uh, thanks for the introduction. Why don't you bring us to our first case? Yeah, sure. This is a case that was uh, provided by Tanya Marvey, one of our PGY4s actually, who saw this patient in the MICU. 
It's a case of a 29-year-old gentleman who initially presented with altered mental status. He had a history of alcohol use disorder with prior withdrawal seizures. And the morning that he presented to the hospital, he developed progressive confusion and became somewhat combative with his family. And later in the day when his parents came to check on him, he was completely unresponsive. So they called EMS who brought him to the hospital. Notably, when he presented, his vitals were significant for a temp of 98.3, heart rate in the 150s, a respiratory rate that was elevated to the 50s, uh, normal blood pressure and a normal O2 sat. His labs were really most notable on his BMP, where he had a sodium of 137, a K5.7. His bicarb was undetectable, and he had a gap greater than 20. I think it's probably good here before we move on to the rest of the case to talk a little bit about his vital signs, which I found very interesting. And, and in particular, his respiratory rate of 50 was really notable. You can tell based on the labs that we had mentioned before with the bicarb being undetectable that this was a respiratory compensation for his severe metabolic acidosis. And as I mentioned before, his GCS was three, and I think all of us who have taken step exams are like, oh, I know the answer to that test yeah. question. This guy's getting intubated. Right. And he did. He got intubated pretty quickly when he got here. And, you know, for us as medicine residents, really the only time that we're managing ventilators are in the ICU for the most part. And one thing that we may sometimes forget is once we intubate someone, we need to think about what their compensation or what their respiratory mechanics were prior to when we intubated them. And for this patient who is breathing 50 times a minute, if we put them on the standard 14 breaths per minute that maybe comes on the ventilator, we really could have decompensated him from an acid base standpoint. And so with these folks who have an undetectable acidosis or an undetectable bicarb, and are compensating from a respiratory standpoint, as soon as they're intubated, we need to crank up their respiratory rate to make sure that we're trying to manage the compensation that their normal physiology would be trying to do. It's not only in, well, in, in several patients who have undetectable bicarb or have a really severe metabolic acidosis, we need to think about them. And, and there are three that come to mind for me. Toxic ingestions, which I think most of us can imagine that this is probably going to be what this patient has. Mm -hmm. Another two that we may not think about as often are diabetic ketoacidosis, where they can get the Kuzmal respirations. Uh, often these people don't get intubated necessarily, but if right. they get sick enough, they may require that and mm -hmm. making sure that we're managing that appropriately. The third group is salicylate toxicity. Mm. And they have that combined um, metabolic and respiratory alkalosis, or metabolic acidosis and respiratory alkalosis. And the management of these patients is very interesting in that you try to do everything possible to not intubate these patients because you will not be able to keep up with their respiratory rate on the ventilator. So where it's okay with a toxic ingestion, uh, DKA, where you can maybe manage it there, really the guidelines for salicylate toxicity say if you can do if with if at all within your power do not intubate these patients as you likely will not be able to keep up with their acidosis or with their compensation wow i did not know that yeah that's a great point i think uh greg what what kind of stood out to me when you were presenting this patient was his significant tachypnea uh, but I think that's kind of the forgotten vital sign sometimes. We care about if the patient was febrile, if they were hypotensive, tachycardic, but we really don't pay attention as much to the respiratory rate. So I think that's 
really important too when we're analyzing our patients to make sure we pay attention to all the vital signs because in this patient it was quite possibly the most important one. Yeah. And something that maybe sometimes we may want to actually count ourselves since it's the one that's not automated. That's right. That's a good point. As an aspiring cardiologist, I think tachycardia and blood pressure are still probably the most important. <laughs> well, you know. But respiratory rate, we can we can look at every once in a while. Sure, totally sure. agree. Totally agree. I mean, I'm outnumbered here, I guess. <laughs> Greg, we often get altered mental status as a chief complaint in the MICU. Do you mind uh, giving us a, a brief rundown of how you think about patients with altered mental status? Sure. Yeah, there's, and in fact, over the past two weeks, we've had several morning reports where the chief complaint was altered mental status. And so we had a lot of practice with using a couple of the different mnemonics that folks are comfortable using or that feel are very helpful when we're approaching these patients. Uh, one that's very common is this missed mnemonic, um, not to promote any uh, specific one, but uh, MIST has been really helpful for a lot of folks. And it's an acronym that stands for metabolic, infection, structural, and toxin. I think that covers a lot of the things that we should be thinking about. Metabolic, whether it be from a, a respiratory acidosis with hypercarbia, mm -hmm. um, from liver dysfunction and having hepatic encephalopathy, uh, to renal dysfunction and having an elevated uremia and, and being altered from that standpoint. Infection can be one of several things, whether it's a pneumonia, uh, meningitis is one that we should always thinking, be thinking about as well in folks who are presenting with fevers and altered mental status. And then structural typically is kind of thought about any bleeding complications, subdural hematoma, subarachnoid hemorrhage, or vascular compromise from a stroke. And then the last is toxin, and with this case in particular, toxic alcohol ingestion, alcohol withdrawal, um, or iatrogenic causes of things that we're giving to patients. I think one thing that's interesting to, or, or another point that's good to make, and I think one thing that's helpful for us as we train at Vanderbilt is we rotate on several different subspecialty services and we see that altered mental status has this general workup, but then in specific populations, we have to think about other things. So in folks who have malignancy, all of this missed um, acronym, plus anything that could be related to chemotherapy, progression of their disease, metastatic disease. Um, pancytopenias. Pancytopenias, yeah. exactly. Yeah, so I think as we, it's good to have these general frameworks, but then also be thinking, in my patients specifically, what else based on their past medical history or how they've presented what they've told me about their history of present illness, what else could be causing this altered mental status? Yeah, I like that point a lot. I was going to say, I know Jared is always ICU-minded, it sounds like, but also something that we do see on the floor quite a bit. So this patient ended up having ethylene glycol ingestion and toxicity uh, wow. from the toxic alcohol. And I, Tanya brought up several really interesting teaching points, and there are a few that I wanted to make sure that we talked about on this podcast. One was that the classic step question or the board's question that you'll see will be with ethylene glycol ingestion, they'll have the renal failure from the increased oxalate that it, that accumulates in the, in the kidney and will cause renal failure from the stones that will subsequently develop. However, there are several different stages of ethylene glycol ingestion, and that's actually stage three, which is at 24 to 72 hours oh. after the ingestion. In stage one, within the first 12 hours, really they can look like alcohol overdose from acting intoxicated to having gastric irritation. And you may see some of the CNS depression like what we saw in this patient as well. Mm -hmm. 
Stage two is 12 to 24 hours, and you'll see cardiopulmonary effects, mainly myocardial dysfunction, the tachypnea that this patient demonstrated, and then ARDS. And so then we talk about the stage three of renal failure from 24 to 72 hours, and stage four, which is 72 plus, and they're really described as the late neurologic stage of ethylene glycol toxicity. So Greg, how does one go about trying to identify that this kind of process is going on? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, when folks get admitted to the ICU and there's some concern, or, or to the wards, and there's some concern for toxic ingestion, especially toxic alcohols, our first thought typically goes to, do they have an anion gap, metabolic acidosis? And then second, if they do, let's think about what the osmol gap is, and that can guide us in some way. So Tanya had talked about in her presentation how with these folks, it can be, that can be a little bit of a confounding um, approach in that initially when you present with an ethylene glycol toxicity or uh, ingestion, at the outset, your osmol gap will be very elevated, but your anion gap will not be. And that's because of how the toxic alcohol is broken down from ethylene glycol down to glycolic acid and and oxalic acid. And that's what's mainly responsible for the increased osmol gap. And then you'll see the anion gap lag a little bit behind. Greg, can you remind us real quick? I'm trying to dig back into my brain from med school. What is an osmolar gap and how do you calculate it? Most important thing is getting a serum osmolality. And then with the BMP that you got, you can calculate the osmolarity which is two times the sodium plus the glucose divided by 18 plus the BUN divided by three or 2.8 and then plus or minus the ethanol divided by 4.6. Thank goodness for MD calc. Yeah, I, I was never good at math, Greg. So initially when these patients present, you'll see an increase in the osmol gap, but they'll have a normal anion gap. And then as the alcohols get further broken down, they will develop a anion gap acidosis while their osmol gap normalizes. So depending on the time course of when these patients are presenting, you can see either just an osmol gap, you could see both, or later in the progression, several hours down the road, uh, they may just have an anion gap metabolic acidosis. So one of the teaching points was don't rely completely on the osmol gap or the anion gap metabolic acidosis. Uh, Your history will be key, especially from family members in this situation with a patient who's not able to tell you what's been going on, to know if there's toxic alcohol involved, and then you can use these studies to further supplement or kind of prove your theory of what's going on with the patient. Do you think, and this may be out of the scope of what you wanted to talk about, but do you think it's advisable to check these studies at regular intervals if you feel like that it hasn't demonstrated support for toxic alcohol injection? It's a good question. We don't really know, at least, in the studies that have been described, we don't know if there's a routine role for that. Mm-hmm. I think if you initially get the osmol gap is elevated, but the anion gap is not, we're probably going to be serial getting BMPs on these mm-hmm. folks, especially with this gentleman whose bicarb was less than five to see what response he was having. And you may see the anion gap metabolic acidosis progress as his time course continues to move along. So Greg, how do we go about treating this? Yeah, it's a great question. So really the most important treatment is preventing the degradation of the toxic alcohols into their toxic substrates. And so the couple of therapies that we have, especially here at Vanderbilt, are femepazole. That's kind of one that we'll see classically on 
board and step exams. But then another is that you can just give them good old ethanol, which takes away from their natural uh, degradation and takes it down the ethanol uh, degradation pathway to the not as toxic alcohols. So here in the hospital, uh, the ICU fellows can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there's actually an order for good old whiskey to be given down an NG tube to, uh, again, divert from the breakdown to the toxic alcohols. Wow. And uh, where is that kept exactly? Yeah, in, in my office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's very safe in my office. No, I'm just kidding. With the NG tube. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I look forward to the day that I'll get to pour some Jack Daniels down an NG tube. <laughs> that, that's when I know that I've made it. Did you have any takeaway points you wanted to highlight at the end, Greg? So I think key takeaway points from this case are patients who are coming in with severe metabolic acidosis and have respiratory compromise, if they're getting intubated, we need to remember to mimic or try to mirror what their normal physiology or their compensation is trying to do. And then two, not completely relying on the osmol gap as it's not that sensitive, but taking the whole picture um, into consideration. So, Greg, what what was going on in the next case that you wanted to share with us? Yeah, this was a really neat case of a 32-year-old gentleman who had a history of osteosarcoma with metastasis to the lungs who presented with shortness of breath. And as you can imagine, this oh, patient, the differential for his dyspnea. My favorite differential. <laughs> I love dyspnea. Jared is just beaming over <laughs> in the corner. He's thrilled about this. Getting a little tachypnic just thinking yeah, about it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The last vital sign. But this patient, as you can imagine, the differential was really broad for mm -hmm. his dyspnea. He had been having it for about two weeks. He had a cough. Occasionally had some streaks of blood with his cough. Ooh. And his dyspnea was somewhat worse when he lay down flat. Uh, when he arrived to the emergency department, he was afebrile. His blood pressure was 116 over 64, but he was tachycardic to the 130s, setting well on room air. His labs were really fairly unremarkable, and on exam, what they what was most notable was he was tachycardic, and then his JVD was elevated to his mid-neck. Upon admission, they recognized that he had increased work of breathing and decreased breath sounds on the left side as well. Decreased breath sounds. What are we talking about here, Greg? Yeah, so initially, they saw him down in the emergency department, uh, thought that this was likely related to some pneumonia or progression of his metastatic disease, got an EKG that had low voltages and some concern for electrical alternans. Low voltage. I, I wonder where we're going with this. Electrical alternans? I'm not really good with my Latin. What are you, what are you trying to get at, Greg? Electrical alternans essentially means that there is varying lengths of the or height of the QRS. And oftentimes, especially on our step exams, is concerning for a cardiac tamponade or a, a fusion where the heart is swinging back and forth. And that's really what we're seeing on the EKG. So we're seeing that variation in the QRS height because the heart is swinging back and forth in the pericardial fusion. So they actually ended up getting a CTA because of the hemoptysis. And they found that he had a large necrotic mass on his left side that was consistent with his known osteosarcoma, but then notably on the CT, it showed that there was a moderate pericardial effusion. So the astute admitting team went down and put a cardiac probe on and realized that really he had a very significant pericardial effusion and went and talked with their cardiology colleagues about this. Yep. So wait, what did this guy 
look like? Because that this is obviously a concerning diagnosis that we should be on the lookout for. Yeah, so classically, what you'll see on the test question is that patients with pericardial effusions, specifically tamponade, will have the classic Beck triad, which is hypotension, elevated JVP, and muffled heart sounds. Interestingly enough, though, when this has been studied, this is only present in 10 to 40% of patients who are presenting with tamponade, and this is usually a late finding. So folks are typically a lot sicker and maybe closer to the point of decompensating by the time that you'll see all three of these. So, so Greg, there's, there's one thing that I always get confused on that comes up time and time again. What about pulsus paradoxus? Yeah, I think there's a really crucial point for all house staff to understand is that although we can see signs of tamponade on a TTE or echocardiogram, tamponade is still a clinical diagnosis. And so the, the echocardiographic signs that you'll see are early uh, diastolic RV collapse, um, a large pericardial effusion. You can see some interventricular interdependence um, where you'll see the bowing of the ventricular septum. However, really to diagnose it, you need uh, to do pulses paradoxes, which is where when you take the blood pressure, as you're deflating the cuff, you'll watch and as they breathe in or during the inspiratory phase, their systolic blood pressure will decrease by 10, mil 10 or more millimeters of mercury. The reason that's the case is oftentimes the effusion is significant enough to be causing tamponade physiology. You can get bowing again of the interventricular septum, septum into the left ventricular outflow tract that will cause a decrease in the outflow of the blood from the left ventricle and cause that decrease in the blood pressure. So not really a paradox at all, just just a physiologic response. That's exactly right. Ba -dum -ba -dum. Dr. Campbell, <laughs> Dr. Campbell like, kept yeah. saying that last well, week. And well, I'm like, put. <laughs> yeah. well put, Dr. Pfaff. Yeah. <laughs> Greg, I was wondering, do we have to worry about tamponade in every patient with a pericardial effusion? Yeah, it's a great question. Really, the speed of accumulation is the most important aspect of tamponade. Usually, there's about 10 to 50 cc's of fluid that's surrounding the heart in the pericardial sac. And really only about 100 cc's are needed to create a circumferential effusion. However, if there's a slow pericardial effusion that is developing, you can you can have up to a liter of fluid or more in there and not have any symptoms. Wow, a liter. That's right. That's and, crazy. But it only takes 100 milliliters to create a circumferential effusion. You're saying that's the minimum amount that's been studied to create tamponade physiology if it was developed in, an, in a short period of time. The minimum amount to completely circumvent Around, the heart. But is, not necessarily the minimum amount yeah. to create the physiology. In fact, you can have as know, little as 50 yeah. to 100 cc's mm -hmm. develop rapidly that would cause cardiac tamponade. And so really it's about the rate of accumulation as opposed to how much fluid is actually mm -hmm. there. And we'll see that a lot in our patients who have malignancies that have metastasized to the pericardium. You'll sometimes see it in patients with end-stage renal disease or, or really severe CKD, mm -hmm. that they'll develop uremic pericarditis, and they can have effusions that have been developing for some time, mm -hmm. and they won't get symptomatic until they have one or more liters of fluid. Now, that's not always the case, but can be present. I think more than the specific studies, I was wondering if you might be able to comment on the buckets that you're thinking about in whatever lab tests result from these pericardial 
effusions or just what are the big buckets that you think about in terms of etiology of the effusion? So the way that I typically differentiate thinking about pericardial effusions are idiopathic, then infectious processes, inflammatory, and then malignant, and then kind of this bucket of other which can be the spontaneous bleeds. If someone's had an ablation, you can also get a pericarditis with a subsequent pericardial effusion from that as well. Then there are rarer ones, but those are kind of the big ones initially when we're thinking about the etiologies for it that we should be, that we should be considering. Others are drugs as well. Any drugs that we could be giving patients could be causing that. Again, other things that I've mentioned, um, folks who have chronic kidney disease can develop uremic pericarditis. Folks who have uh, malignancies, in particular leukemia and lymphoma, can have involvement of the pericardium and will have, can have malignant effusions of, of their pericardium. So a couple others uh, that are a little less or rarer are you can have TB involvement, and that'll be kind of like what we see in the peritoneum or in the pleural space, a lymphocytic predominant. Mm-hmm. Folks who have lupus can also have lupus pericarditis and have a pericardial effusion from that or any other inflammatory disorder. So Greg, for, for those of us who, are ju- who just started in July, if you're down in the ED and you're evaluating a patient while your senior is drinking coffee upstairs, what are the first things that you should do if you're really concerned about tamponade? This is one of the great things for an intern to be able to manage because there's nothing that you can really do that's gonna help this patient. <laughs> and so you need to talk to your friendly cardiologist about performing a pericardiocentesis. In particular, if they have tamponade physiology, that is the definitive treatment. I will mention something that, that we talk about a lot, which is the fluid management in these folks. I think most of us know that based on their physiology, they're fairly preload dependent and that they have this constricting sac around them that um, if they don't have enough fluid in their RV to have forward flow, they could get decompensated from that. So diuresing these folks, which may be tempting initially when you see them with an elevated JVD, they're really short of breath, they may have some lower extremity edema, you may think that diuresing these folks would be helpful, but it actually will lead them to cardiorespiratory compromise or cardiac compromise. The other side is a little more nuanced, and, and some folks would propose giving these patients a bolus of fluid. However, if you, you have to be somewhat careful with that in that, as we talked about with the pulsus paradoxus, if you give these folks too much fluid, what you could worsen is the interventricular interdependence and worsen the LV outflow obstruction and potentially compromise their hemodynamics in that way. So that's why really I would say, if you have a patient with cardiac tamponade, you should be talking with the cardiology fellow and really the interventional attending about performing a pericardiocentesis as soon as you're able to. And then you can talk with them about fluid management if they think that giving these patients some fluid would be beneficial if they're hypotensive. If they're just tachycardic but their blood pressure is fine otherwise, I'd probably just talk with the cardiologist first to get the pericardiocentesis done as opposed to messing around with the fluids. So who is it that we should actually be throwing a probe on? Because there are many patients that come in with some of these signs that maybe tamponade is not our first thought about what could be going on with them. Sure. Right now, it's so easy to grab an ultrasound in the emergency department and do a bedside ultrasound, on a cardiac ultrasound. They really, you can rule this out, or at least rule out some of the concerning features on an, on an echo fairly quickly. And so I would argue that in most patients who are presenting with dyspnea and any sign or concern for right-sided heart failure with the J, elevated JVD, lower extremity swelling, shortness of breath, that really should be one thing that we're considering. And again, it's easy to do a cardiac ultrasound and rule this out. 
So, so you could argue most of our heart failure exacerbation patients potentially could benefit from a bedside ultrasound instead of having to wait whatever the backlog is for the ischemic TTE that we have thought about. Yeah, and, and in, in those folks you, as well, you could verify that their EF has not gotten significantly mm -hmm. worse as well. I think that especially in the subset of patients who have maybe a higher risk for something that could result in a pericardial effusion, malignancy, chronic kidney disease, recent viral infection. Again, very easy to rule this out by doing a simple bedside ultrasound. So as a new intern, it sounds like pretty important to know how to page or find the cardiology fellow's phone number. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> is, right. Is one of the takeaways I'm taking. And that. you know, I, I actually admitted a patient who uh, to Morgan who had cardiac tamponade last year. And if you can't get a hold of him, what one thing I did is I just walked up to the CCU and said, hey, I did this ultrasound. I'm a little concerned about it. Do you mind taking a look at it? They looked at it, took it right over to the interventional attending, and the patient was up in the cath lab wow. about 30 minutes later. And so the cardiology fellow or the CCU fellow should typically be in the CCU, and so that's a really easy way to go find someone to talk about sure. it quickly. Greg, do you mind just giving us a few learning points for our listeners? Yeah, so folks who are coming in with shortness of breath, Cardiac tamponade should be on our differential, especially if they're somewhat tachycardic, maybe hypotensive as well, we should be worried about it. And those who have risk factors that could make you lead to think that they may have tamponade, such as metastatic disease, chronic kidney disease. Others are, remember that the Beck triad may not present until later in their course, and so have a high suspicion for cardiac tamponade. And then the third is that pericardiocentesis is the definitive treatment and that we should be careful with fluid management and really should never diurese these patients. And if we're giving a fluid bolus, should be thinking about the physiology and how we could potentially worsen their uh, cardiac hemodynamics if we were to give them any fluid boluses. The size of an effusion that you see on your bedside ultrasound shouldn't be comforting to you, even if it is very small. Right. Yep, yeah. so that's why it's important to clarify that this is a clinical diagnosis and why doing a pulsus paradoxus, if your suspicion mm -hmm. is high enough, is the most important. And, and to be fair, I think several of us are not that comfortable doing a bedside cardiac ultrasound and saying by ourselves that this is not tamponade. Whereas if you could do pulsus paradoxus, and if you're not comfortable with that, we can practice it as well. But that really is the way that we'll make the clinical diagnosis that mm -hmm. this is cardiac tamponade. Well, thank you so much, yeah. Greg, for coming in and teaching us. I feel like I learned so much today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really just want to plug in Greg's CD so that we can listen to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope to see you next time.